and welcome to the Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast with me, Ella Marchant. At the college, every October, we celebrate Black History Month. As part of this, it's crucial to recognise and celebrate the diverse past, present and future of the college by speaking to psychiatrists, mental health professionals and patients. It's very important that we speak to patients and hear about the care that they have received. Joining us on the podcast, we have Michelle Joseph, who is a patient representative here at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. For Black History Month, Michelle will be sharing her experience of being a patient on a psychiatric ward, her experience of racism in the UK and how she would alter the mental health system to benefit both staff and service users. Thank you for joining me today. Do you think we could just talk about when you first became aware of having mental health needs? Well, I think this kind of question is one where I can look at it in the moment and then look at it retrospectively. So my first encounter with a mental health hospital was in 1999. I didn't necessarily think there was anything wrong with me at the time, but my friends and family were concerned around my behaviour. With this concern, I was what they call kind of triaged, as it were, because they would have three uh, professionals, a social worker and all that kind of stuff, come assess you if you are going to be sectioned um, then these three professionals would need to agree or you can go involuntarily and it just so happened that I had been in a situation quite similar a couple of months previously so I got a sense that they were gonna you know take me to hospital as it were Um, so I decided that I was going to uh, go involuntarily because I, I just kind of knew that that would be the best the best route so yeah um first became aware in in 1999 which was my first admission into hospital and when friends and family would voice concerns to you what kinds of things would they say so I, it was more a behavior thing so the way i was talking the way i was acting the way i was reacting you know i think it would have if i if i look back on it literally no no boundaries in the sense of speaking it's you know at great speed disconnected thought processes almost like a a fearless quite um, full-on behavior full-on in the sense of um, a a lot of speaking (laughs) and and making perfect sense to myself and clearly not to others and what has your journey with mental health services been like well to be honest it has been mixed my first encounter in 1999 um so a bit of background i lived in an area that was very close to a particular mental health hospital that was called the maudsley and um, because of just growing up in the area that was seen as the hospital that nobody would want to go to and so because my assessment was in that hospital which is where you know um assessments actually happened in those days as opposed to being triaged in uh, in a in an A and E uh, situation, so yeah, with the stigma that was attached to the Maudsley, I requested to go to another facility, and this facility was a, of a private um, nature, and unfortunately, it was atrocious, and I felt more like I was trying to have to protect myself. 
while I was there rather than feeling like I was being taken care of. Um, the basics of just being respectful and kind did not exist. There was only one particular nurse who was on the night shift, um, which was like she was almost like an angel. And, I, and when I state that, the reason why I state that is that when I went to this private hospital, I was admitted late and they didn't do checks on my health and uh, and just checking you know whether I was even on medication or what whether I had any any health issues and actually I have reactionary asthma and so they gave me medication that reacted to my asthma and so I truly felt that I was passing away like I, I was not being able to breathe I was struggling to breathe. Did you have access to your um, inhalers? No no, because I was just um, taken from the Maudsley to this place um, and was given uh, medication to help with what was going on. And, you know, things like haloperidol, procyclidine and all that kind of stuff, which can react to asthma. Um, and I spent that first night fear in fear that I was going to drift off. And this is why I say that this particular um, nurse that was on at night, she, she stayed with me and reassured me and said that it will work its way out of my system. And we just need to just try and keep you awake until the morning. And by then it should it should ease. So I felt like I had to protect myself right from the beginning. And it would appear that you're not allowed to have an opinion in these settings. Now, whether this is because they see that you're not of sound mind, so clearly anything that you come out with, and also there is this control, and therefore if you have an opinion, again, it is not considered. And it can be with the most basic things. I remember one incident where I went for breakfast and the food was cold. I hate cold food. <laughs> and so I asked if it could be heated up and I was dismissed in not a very nice way and just told really just to have what you're being given type thing. Um, you're not a prisoner, you're meant to be being looked after. Well, that's that's what we believe is the case, but it isn't necessarily the, the truth. And so, especially when you're vulnerable, like anybody who goes into these facilities, these mental health wards facilities are vulnerable. And I always um, use the term, it should be a safe place to fall, um, that you should be um, kind of um, made to feel that even though the pressures of the world, because that's what it is, you know, it's the pressures of the world that are so um, overwhelming um literally breaks you and breaks your mind and fractures your mind and so at that time when that happens you should be held in the sense of in a safe environment um however you know unfortunately my experiences were not were not like that um and to be honest it, it you know it's that kind of thing where the very um, place that I said I didn't want to go is the place I ended up in in the end so I left the facility of this private place so this would have been like six weeks afterwards 
in that six six weeks in this private facility, I it was it was awful. I mean, we were literally taking care of each other. And so I ended up in the very place I didn't want to be in. However, it was the best place to have been in. You know, when places have stigma attached to them and then you make a decision, you're thinking you're making the right decision for yourself and you're not. And so, yeah, I ended up in the Maudsley and there was care from the staff. It was almost it flipped, like in the private facility, it was the patients that were taking care of each other and the staff weren't. Whereas in the Maudsley, the, 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 the nurses were taking care of the patients. The nurses were on it. Um, and there was a particular nurse and he was amazing. He cared about me. He cared about my well-being. And he was so, in, in those days, they would have meetings of all the necessary people that was um, assigned to your care. And they would try to work out what would help you and um, once you leave the facility, what what do you need? It was so patient centred, a really good marriage of, of health care. And for me, it was around needing a, uh, a secure um, home, a place I could call home. And that that was achieved. Um, they were able to put me on a housing list and I was able to be housed and that place truly did become my sanctuary. However, unfortunately, because I was supposed to have a CPN, a community nurse, they never showed up. So I was pretty much left to heal myself for the rest of the journey, which was unfortunate because there were times I felt despairing um, and but but knew I didn't want to end up back in a ward. So, um, you know, I have to be honest, my faith has always been with me. And so I really had to draw on on that. So after your discharge from an inpatient setting, a ward, you're given a nurse who'll visit you and check up on you. And does that happen to every single person who's discharged? Well, I would like to think so. I think that's what it was back then. It was, a, a, I think they call them CPNs, community practice nurses. It was assigned to you, but my one never turned up. Um, and so, you know, that was the experience in 99. I had a very, I, in 2005, I was actually living in Ireland and I again became unwell. And I, it was a very different um, uh, approach. Um, literally, they did assess you and then they gave you a really heavy duty drug, which I don't know what it was, but it just it just knocked you out. And so I clearly slept. And as a result, when I woke up, it's like my brain had recalibrated and I was having like my thoughts were making sense again. My, you know, I'd reached a place and I actually thought that was quite good because really it is about, you know, your brain firing and misfiring and disconnected. And, and it is about bringing it to a place of absolute rest as opposed to if you remain alert because sleep goes, you don't need it. When you are experiencing mania, uh, from my experience, you just don't need to sleep, you know? And, uh, and so every bit of information that you are receiving, you're hitting off and reacting and responding. 
So that process was actually, I thought, quite a good one because it brought me back quite, quite quickly. And then the two years that I count as really healing and uh, giving me an understanding of mental health was the fact that I ended up in the Maudsley in 2012. And then two years later, I was there in 2014. I was going through a very traumatic situation. I'll just say I'm a divorcee now, and that will leave it at that. And as a result, because obviously I'm talking about this retrospectively. So as a result, in 2014, there were still staff members who knew me from 2012. This continuity of care, which I would sing from the rooftops, it helped me heal in 2014 because they knew me in 2012. And as a result, in 2014, they put in measures that because there was an absolute direct, almost like a um, repeat of what had happened in 2012. But in 2012, they didn't realise who my stressor and trigger was. Whereas in 2014, they went, hmm, something's not quite right here and therefore safeguarded me. And so I was able to be in an environment that I felt so protected by to the point that my care in 2012, obviously it had its challenges, but as feeling cared for, supported on a ward, it meant that in, in 2014, I actually ran to the hospital to be assessed, to be admitted, because I truly believed it was my only refuge. So that goes to show that in 2012, I must have believed so imagine, you know, I'm not thinking straight because I have, my brain has disconnected again. And the one thing that I knew I had to do was get to a place of safety. In that place of my mind, it made me feel that my place of safety would be going back to the Maudsley. And that's a testament in itself, I think, because... If I hadn't had the treatment that I knew I'd had in 2012, there's no way I'd have thought that that would have been my best environment. And in 2014, I was heard, I was taken care of. There were many things revealed and I truly believed that they, I like the term, they had my back when all those around me didn't outside, they had my back. And it was a process that led to me being able to be cared for be protected. They have these home treatment teams who are that um, that bridge of being out in the world, still feeling vulnerable to a certain extent, and then being in a situation where you're seeing them, they're coming to see you every day. But I also was given therapy, which was, which revolutionized my life really. Uh, because it was at that therapy in 2014 where it was identified that so the term chemical imbalance is used a lot when they talk about mental ill health but actually mine was a chemical imbalance it was identified that I had very depleted iron stores and that was due to a condition which I uh, had which was uh, fibroids and fibroids mean that you bleed a lot and as a result I was losing blood in a, in a crazy way and as a result I would be my my 
uh, hemoglobin would be low, my ferritin would be low, and I wasn't getting enough oxygen to my brain, which was making me go into psychosis. Because one of the things that the, that the um, psychologist said to me, or psychiatrist said to me was, how comes you remember everything that happens? And I'm like, well, doesn't everybody? And she goes, no, they don't. Which shows that I was in a state of being able to process, but I wasn't in a state to be able to communicate. Um, so there was a visual, I can remember everything so vividly. Um, so that's why I remember. But it really changed my life. And as a result, it meant that my one of the things that needs to be checked is to see where my ferritin and, and ferritin stores, my iron stores are and where my hemoglobin is. And since I've been keeping on top of that, then um, two medical interventions. So I had uh, my amectomy first and then they came back and then I had embolization and that reduced the fibroids. And as a result, I wasn't experiencing massive blood loss. And now at the age of 51, I have, you know, I'm I'm in the menopause, so there's no bleeding. And as a result, my health and my mental health has improved. And it's one of the things we talk about, you know, when having had meetings with the Royal College, I think they call it comorbidity, where they're taking into account what's happening with you physically and that all these things have to be considered which is something that is so important because there are many people who are experiencing what I'm experiencing and it hasn't been picked up. And it was only by having like, I think I saw this psychiatrist for at least over a year. That is gold and it's a kind of gold treasure that I really think should be unearthed again. <laughs> And, and used because you, I don't believe that you can process this condition in like seven weeks. It's just it's just not possible, and it's ridiculous to think so. And actually, you know, they talk about money. Money is always this thing that people talk about, but the reality is, is that you'll be saving money if you're able to address what it is that's in that person that's making them um, snap. You know, you ask about um, my journey, mental health services, and I think it's important for me to speak about the, the last one that I had, which was in 2017. And again, I won't mention names, but it was atrocious. And to know from what I've said previously that it can work and it does work, to then revisit it three years later, and this was a totally different borough, and to see how awful it can be and how awful it has become from that timeline of 2014 to 2017. Again, I found myself in a situation like in 1999, like in this private hospital, and it wasn't private, it was NHS. And to find myself in a situation where, again, I felt fearful for my life. But not only that, the senior doctors who were supposed to be assessing your care again with my long history I had a care plan in place the care plan was put in place from 2014 of what medication I need and all that kind of stuff and this particular medical professional refused to accept that and put me on such a high dose and also not the one that I use so 
there's a medication called quetiapine XL and there's a one that's called quetiapine. Quetiapine XL is a slow release and this doctor refused to give me the one that was mine. And quetiapine, for me, who has high absorbency, so absorbs medication in a quite a quick rate, I was given it and I just about, and I mean that, made it back to my room. That's how quick it worked for me. And so that really concerned me. And it so happened that there was a day when a friend came in who's also a medical professional. And it was just at the time when I was going to be going in to speak around meds and what's happening on the ward and what, what the plan was going forward. And she was able to come in and she advocated for me and stated, you know, um, that I... You know, I know what I'm supposed to have. There's a care plan in place. Why aren't you doing? The medical professional agreed. And so it gave me real comfort. However, when it came to taking the meds, they had reduced it, but then they'd replaced it with another mood, mood stabilizer, which was sodium valparate. So it's that kind of thing where it's so upsetting that you're in an environment again, which is supposed to be helping you, healing you. Uh, protecting you and guiding you because if you're not really thinking in a way that you know is conducive to everyday thinking you should feel like you're being protected and instead I was given medic high doses of medication that I didn't require I was kept on the ward and wasn't allowed to leave the ward it, it was awful and and very damaging Thank you so much for sharing that story and thank you for being so honest. And also thank you for putting it into a timeline so it's we can understand the journey that you've been on and the fact that you've visited the same facility several times as well is very interesting. As a black woman on the receiving end of mental health services, do you, in your opinion, do you think it's changed for the better or worse considering that you've got experience spanning from 1999 till 2017? You know, I can honestly say when I initially went into any mental health facility, I never, ever um, thought that my the colour of my skin was attributing to how I was being treated. However, I have to say, when you are witnessing how other people are being treated to how you're being treated, you can't help but wonder is it because of the colour of my skin? So being a patient representative for the Royal College of Psychiatry and the discussions that we would have been having from August 2020 to put together papers and stuff, and we're talking about equality and equity, and also then hearing the statistics of how black people are treated with mental health, you almost go, surely not. Surely I wasn't treated like that because of the colour of my skin. I feel I have the right to give my opinion, which is an informed opinion and an intelligent opinion because I know my journey. I know what works for me. I have, alongside medical professionals, been educated, so gone to meetings around mental ill health, around strategies and dealing with it, you know, around assessing my triggers, and being able to understand what I need to do to keep myself well, which does include medication. 
And when you're in a situation where you're trying to impart that knowledge of your health needs um, to keep well, to become well again, and you're not being heard, and you're being told you're being aggressive, and you're told you're, you know, talking over people and not giving people an opportunity, you're even being told that you're talking too much. And you go, I'm just trying to inform you with this last situation in 2017, they did home treatment team. Knowing what a home treatment team is like and seeing how these people were conducting themselves as a home treatment team, they would come into my home, they would ask me questions, I would answer those questions, and then they would note down that Michelle is still experiencing mania because she's talking too much. And you're just like, how does that make sense? And then I found myself adjusting my behaviour, realising that in order for me to be heard, I'm going to have to adopt a personality that is more acceptable and more conducive to, to them hearing my voice. And again, I think because you can't help but avoid knowing that if over the years, because you have a voice and you feel you have a right for your voice to be heard, that you're being called aggressive, that you're being told that you, almost like you don't have a right to your opinion, then I suppose I still want to believe, and maybe that's just me, I still want to believe it's not to do with the colour of my skin. However, I am at times on the receiving end of behaviour that can only be reacting to me because of the colour of my skin. Because there are times I wouldn't even have opened my mouth and expressed myself. There are times I'm having to say to people I don't know what this is about but I just need to tell you and I have said this recently my name is Michelle Joseph I'm a really nice person so whatever's going on with you can you see me please and to think that you have to say that and you know the only thing that they can be responding to when you haven't opened your mouth is how you look so there's aggression already happening towards you there's a there's a there's a defensiveness i have to acknowledge that as a person of color when i see people who who are n- not people of color how they're being treated in a softer way then you know that well it's not because i'm shouting uh it's because they feel more comfortable with them interacting with them than they do with me even though they don't know me so in your opinion we've already talked about this a little bit but has the uk progressed or regressed in terms of dealing with racism i think we're in a very difficult season in our world you know we know that things have changed quite significantly with what happened uh, with george floyd we see many organizations trying to acknowledge or take ownership of what they are or are not doing within their organizations trying to you know we know we've got the whole thing around black lives matter i can honestly say to you i've always believed my life has mattered so i am in this 
kind of place where I go, is this just another short term reaction to something that should never have happened? Because this is not something new. I was growing up in the days of Stephen Lawrence. I was going to college in an area very close to um, where his life was taken. And I was experiencing so much racism. And so that would have been in 19, you know, between 1989 to 1992, when I was at drama school. And to find ourselves in 2021, having to express slogan strap lines like Black Lives Matters. You know, you have to understand when I grew up in the 70s, there used to be in South East London, NF rallies in Camberwell. And as a young child growing up, you had to, if you found yourself out in Camberwell Green <laughs> and you needed to run pretty quick um, to get yourself home, because they were coming, you know, they were and had the right to march openly on on the streets of, of London. And so to know that, and, and, I, and also I've, I've been in a situation where um, when I left school, because of the way I speak, and I used to speak a bit posher, because my mum's a bit posh, um, bless her. Um, and so I had a very like RP-esque accent then and I remember calling up for a job position I had all the the what was then O-level qualifications I went to this establishment they saw who walked in I sat down they left me waiting for 45 minutes and then said that the post had gone because the person who they thought they were speaking to on the phone was not the person who presented them when they walked in and the only difference can be because I never lost the qualifications in that time I never lost the way I spoke at that time it was very evident it was due to the color of my skin and so when you've grown up with that you say has it regressed well it's just come out of the shadows because I believe it's always been there is it a beast that we're going to be able to slay I hope However, and this is how I always phrase it, I continue to see man's inhumanity to man, which is humankind being inhuman to humankind. In my opinion, has the UK progressed or regressed in dealing with racism? I feel sometimes we're in this dance of progression and then it fizzles out and we regress. I also believe that as a woman, who has been born in the UK and who has lived in England, I will, and I make a point of it now, I'm English, I'm English. You know, I say to my friends, how can someone be born in France and be French? How can someone be born in Germany and be German? And I'm born in England and I'm British because of the color of my skin. So that makes no sense to me. And so the reality is, is that I was born in England and therefore I'm English. And, you know, we need to, and I think that's what a lot of, um, I just feel like there's a generation of, of, of young black people, and I consider myself young as well still, who are not afraid 
to speak out against injustices that they're on the receiving end. And I always say it just takes one. And if all of these one people in their own little places stand up and speak out, and it doesn't have to be aggressive, it doesn't have to be confrontational. I think that's the, the, the misunderstanding of communication of our, our, you know, how we present ourselves with our attitudes, with our behaviours in, in communicating. You know, I'm speaking to you, I'm talking about things that I'm impassioned about. There's no aggression in me. And, you know, if someone receives what I say as aggressive, then I would question what's going on for them. Absolutely. And if we could create a step-by-step -step process or if you were Prime Minister tomorrow, how would you change mental health services to make them work for patients and staff? You know what, I truly believe that we have the ability to improve mental health, which is why I believe I get so frustrated by it. I do perceive my journey in mental health, even with its moments of sadness. I do perceive my journey as a positive one, even just speaking here with yourself and being able to communicate not with pain anymore, but with genuine passion, because I genuinely decided, and this was after the life-changing experience in 2017, and I stated to people that rather than become bitter about what I had been on the receiving end of, I was going to make it better. And I was going to stand up. And I was going to speak out. And it's not in any way other than to try and communicate to all those who have the power, the position and the pennies <laughs> to change it, then we need to start doing that. If I was able to speak with these people, I would say to them, and I do feel privileged, I have to say, you know, I'm actually in the chief executive's task force. I mean, my mind gets blown when I think about it, that I have been positioned in this, where I get to speak and have conversations with Adrian James, with Paul Reese, with, with Shalade, with Raj, I feel privileged and also to hear what is happening for workers and also for patients. It gives you a real understanding that what we need to do categorically is listen to each other and not feel like there is one against the other. It's very easy for me to feel, based on my experiences, say with a CPN that didn't appear, or with a, a nurse, a psychiatric nurse that didn't assist me in a way, or with a you know a medical doctor on a ward that it'd be so easy to to brush tar them with the same all with the same brush, and that's not the case. But equally, that has to be the other way. Not everybody who has mental ill health should be tarred with the same brush. You know. I truly believe in my experience that mental health is on a spectrum and there are those who have moments where the world is just too much for us and we need to be protected. I would consider myself high functioning because it's being maintained by myself and also now 
you leave hospital, you get put into the home treatment team and then you get signed back to your GP. And that would be what I would state for the journey of someone who needs help. I think also we need to stop because like the hospital that I was in in 2017 looked amazing. It was clean. I mean, it was so clean. So they spent all this money on people cleaning the places and making it look really clean while the actual nursing staff was had such a high turnover. The the staff were fearful and at times in this particular ward when a patient would, as I call, kick off, the nurses hid themselves and locked themselves in this nurses station and left us as patients to either run to our rooms and lock our rooms to make sure we were safe. So it is about protecting the nursing staff. It is about appreciating what they do. I do believe that this role as a nursing staff is a, is a vocation because not everybody can be in that environment and it not impact on them. So it's about making sure that nursing staff have the support that they need whatever that looks like for them. And we need to listen to what that looks like, what that feels like, whether it's having um, groups um, that, are, that they're accessible to at any point if they're struggling, whether it's a, a specific set team leader, you know, that, that or, or a buddy system, whatever that looks like for that person, those things need to be in place for them. If we don't take care of the nursing professionals, then how are they supposed to take care of us? We need to safeguard each area, you know, because then when they are their best self and they don't feel weary or feel like because, you know, when it's a vocation, it's a role that you take that is more heart led and head instructed. So they know what they're doing. They know what they're supposed to do within their role. However, there is there are times when you meet a nurse who you know cares about you you know they and you feel so safe and in order for them to feel that they have the capacity to care well then those in those senior positions need to make sure that they are cared for and then you know it is like a trickle down effect it really is you know and then as a result as the person on the receiving end of care when i state that i believe that my story is a success is because in that timeline between 2012 and 2014 well actually let's say 2012 and 2016 because that's when i then went into um getting the uh, psychiatric care that i needed talking through what had happened what what life skills i was going to put in in place teaching myself to be kind to myself because when you have this and i can only speak for myself you feel worthless you feel like um you know why why did this have to happen to me and you blame yourself you blame yourself because you have responded and reacted to friends and family members in ways that you can't take back that you have been stigmatized throughout your life and you feel like you'll never be beyond that mental health problem and then you have to learn to accept what you have because until you reach that point where you accept that this is this could this is going to be your life so what are you going to do to try and 
make your life still worth living. And it starts with accepting and loving that this doesn't have to define who you are, even if others do define you by it. And it doesn't have to restrict the quality of life that you can have if the proper processes are put in place. So what would I do? Based on my journey, I would make sure that everybody has a safe environment on a mental health ward. And that would look like staff that genuinely care, who generally um, want to be there so that they can take care of the patients who need a soft place to fall. And also that they are prepared to listen to the patient. And when I mean that, there are patients who come in, like myself, who didn't need to be in that ward as long as I was and had to in 2017 because I had been allowed to keep my mobile phone. I was able to call pals and it was pals that got me out of that ward because they were keeping me there. And that in itself makes, it's just crazy. You'd say, well, why would that happen? And what's very unfortunate when I called pals, pals said, you're supposed to be home. We have you down under the care of the home treatment team. And I said to them, well, I am not at home. I'm on this ward. This is the name of the ward and this is where I am. And it was them who advocated for me and contacted the manager of the ward. And I went from just about being sectioned to then all of a sudden being able to leave. So that needs to be addressed. I would then say that once they feel that they're in a place that they are ready to go into their home and if they have a home for themselves that make sure that there is a home treatment team and these home treatment team members again need to be coming from a place that they are looking at the patient that they're taking the needs of the patient into what and how they are trying to care for them once they're out in their environment and equally there are people who are maybe having to go back into a home environment that is fractious and again that needs to be considered and then signed back into the care of the GP and for me I'm very fortunate my GP has known me since 2012 that continuity of care that I talk about when we saw about you know speaking about 2012 2014 this is the same continuity of care because if there is at any point when I feel oh I need to address something I'm able to speak to my GP and I know and he's amazing I know that he takes time to just check in with me to just see and this is another thing it's so much about time um if we were to safeguard those and listen to what our needs are and try to help with those needs and I do believe that talking therapy whether it's in a group you know if they're having to say that um you know this one-to-one can only be for seven weeks well make it 28 weeks and make it uh, of seven people because there's there's information that can be learned from hearing other people's experiences it also gets you from out of your mind and makes you realize oh that thought oh what you have it too 
There is great learning in sharing experiences, learning strategies that people who might be at the beginning, like me in 1999, if my 2021 self could talk back to my 1999 person, then I would may have made many different decisions, choices. However, we live our lives. We can't live it retrospectively. But I do believe we actually have the resources to try and prevent, where possible, these readmissions, people being discharged before they're ready. It's an automatic readmission. It's like I left the private hospital. I was not ready. I had not healed. And less than three week, three days later, I was back because what happened in that six weeks had nothing to do with looking on how I can be best cared for. I don't believe it's reinventing the wheel. You know, I, I use the term, it's about putting on Pirelli tyres and if we're not allowed to use a specific yeah. word, or just say it's not about reinventing the wheel, it's about making sure that we put better tyres, really good tyres on the on that wheel. Thank you so much for sharing that, it was amazing and I think everyone will respond well to taking care of carers so that they can care. It's so vital that staff you're talking about something very simple, which is just staff retention. You're talking about not having a high turnover of staff, which, as you say, it's not it's not reinventing the wheel. You're just, well, service users and, and the f friends and family of service users want to know that, as you've been saying throughout this podcast, there's a safe place to fall. It's very important that there's a, a soft, blankety place. Absolutely. Huge thank you to Michelle for her openness and honesty on the podcast. If you would like to see more of our content for Black History Month, please go to our website, which is www.rcpsych.ac.uk. Select About the College, then Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. Thank you for listening to the Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast with me, Ella Marchant.